and welcome to Theory Talk, a critical thinking jam session. I am Joseph Weissman. Today's episode was recorded February 17th of 2017. Taylor Atkins and I discuss knowledge, understanding, and science. The conversation lasts about an hour. Please enjoy. two states of war and uh, thinking that can be distinguished um, and they are they kind of overlap but they and they, they they presuppose each other one is is that conflict uh, between science and philosophy where thought is divided up um, insofar as Philosophy claims that science needs its 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 manner of thinking in order to provide a, a foundation for it, in order to found a, a transcendental basis for it. I mean, this is this is kind of like Kant, um, but also Husserl in their own way, right? They try to see the role of metaphysics or philosophy as um, preparing the ground and clearing the way for the movement of science. And in that sense, they subordinate science to uh, to philosophy. And one can see this in Heidegger. One can see this in Badu, right? With the four the four events, uh, the four evental types, the four truth procedures. One of which is is science. Um, and non philosophy is is. Well, that's that's so that's that's one state of the war is between science and philosophy, but it also implies uh, a war among philosophical decisions, a war among philosophies that itself involves a a play of desires, investments, belief, beliefs. It, it's it. Um, there's necessarily a philosophical faith and belief that is not able to externally use verification and falsification in the way that science uses them, right? Any sort of verification or falsification of a philosophy would be based on seeking its effects in the world and based on its how one can exploit its manner of um, dividing up the real, right? Dividing up being and thinking or language and, and the real. I mean, using... Uh, how much can one exploit its play of dualities, its play of oppositions? Um, you know, and, and so... But science is, 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 compared to philosophy, then seemingly more anarchic. Because it goes through a, a verifiability pro process and, and isn't isn't able to rest uh, so consistently on these these oppositions, but at the same time it, it inherits right the 
sort of a phil- it inherits its own philosophical inspirations and even though it's d- distrustful of them often right like right. at least I, I don't know many scientists who talk about truth right they'll talk about reality me- they're talking about measurements usually yes. you know what i mean like specific experiments in which they measured some quantity right they usually don't you know but I mean, maybe one thing here is about how data don't tell their own story, right? That that you that facts are a separate layer on top of data that represent abstractions and inferences, and, right? And do link up with at least some truth procedures, right? Maybe this is, you know, something I'm I'm thinking about, right? The way there there are inductions and inferences, and in other words, logical processes right applied to raw data right i I mean i mean again i don't think you know there's there's something about a a break with philosophy that's about a break with an ideal regime of truth procedures but at, at the same time there's something funny about like the way philosophy and math can be collapsed right in terms of they're both about functions right this is at least D&G's way of thinking and what is what is philosophy sort of seeing them both as creative and in the same domain as creating these these maps these functions and, and theories really seem to be a higher order thing that sort of aren't fully determined by these functions right um, and, and I mean I guess there's a war among scientists too to some degree like there's problems about inner theoretic relationships and to what to what extent you know you can reduce kind of and, and I, there's a there's often a question of the directionality of the reduction right like which, yeah. which way to synthesize you know sort of from more specific to less specific and so you know in the order of generality or in the order of complexity mm-hmm. and sometimes in at least different cases of reductions kind of work work you know, between the same two systems, but in different directions, right? Um, and so there's this, I mean, even within science, there's a sort of, like, you know, at least conflict contention about sort of who gets to be the base of the of the pyramid. There, yeah. There's still this kind of positivistic struggle about what's, what is ground reality and sort of what are constructions on top of it. But, I mean, like, sort of increasingly, it's kind of recognized that it's like, well, these theories are kind of patchwork, sets of inferences that work at certain scale lengths, right? We, we shouldn't necessarily expect a grand deunification or to be able to reduce biology to physics right. in any sort of complete way because there's sort of genuinely new phenomenon, right, that aren't, that are emergent, right, that, uh, that aren't sort of fully reducible to things at the layer, layer beneath it. Um, so, I, I don't know, I mean, I feel like there's a similar thing in philosophy about positivism and sort of like you know arranging this sort of the syntax of disciplines right and sort of implicitly structuring the discursive contexts right and sort of i feel like you were talking about this the philosophy functions as like a, a guardian over the conditions of truth sort of rain, you know ruling this territory preparing the ground for various kind of flavors of truth procedures um this is kind of this preparatory labor for for people who may not even recognize what they're doing as as related to the truth procedure. Maybe this is the thing, right? Like the philosophical forces that shape science don't look like the science. Right. right? They they 
They don't even kind of resemble it, except, you know, abstractly, insofar as you're already on the philosophical side and, and conflating truth and reality, right? Yeah, and it does seem that the the war in, in, in science, between scientists, involves, uh, goes back to the organization, the philosophical impulses, right? I mean, like, for example... Um, and this is not as hard as one might get with the hard sciences, but just think of like the debates of Darwin and Lamarck, right? Even though the material is empirical forms and could be with a long enough vision tested experimentally, and yet, you know, the backbones of sketching out the ideas is mainly a philosophical origin, and... It's the same thing with, with, with Freud, right? The inspiration is to be able to respect and to move forward like, like a science, and yet at the same time, because of the, because of the sort of abstraction in which um, we are initially to start to gather phenomena and, and, and foreign empiricism right it can never it can, it's 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 always in, in front of itself it's always projecting out and speculating and that's why it has to be able to um to not take it so self so seriously in its own ground because it's it's feeling its way in the dark um and has to be able to go back and 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 formalize later but in philosophies uh, is in that sense also, you know, it's it's distinct. It it it's meant to be a sort of unification of 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 a worldview through um, this division of of contraries into a unity, uh, and so yeah, I mean, the war among philosophers and the war between philosophy and science in their instantiations are uh, are intertwined even if they may seem distinct for example I mean insofar as astronomy and cosmology are, are sciences um, there's ways in which our apprehension of the data right is is there's a there's a sense in which it's not fully raw for physical science. I mean, it requires some sort of philosophical backdrop that would prime and orient its, its thinking. I mean, I'm just thinking, for example, of the way in which we formulate the relative age of, of the stars or... Um, even the apocalyptic kind of um, way in which we project out the eventual fate of the universe, right? A lot of these require at least a minimum of, uh, of a philosophical matrix that maybe is more explicit than, say, in other sciences like biology or physics. Um, it's able to. It's it's a little bit easier to kind of show, perhaps, some of the the philosophical underpinnings in the way we 
we calculate, for example, this uh, the essence of the Big Bang or the the essence of heat death or um, the eventual contraction of of the universe, right? There's it's these these big themes involve more explicitly some of this philosophical metaphysical baggage that ideally science tries to reduce um, but there's also ways in which philosophy benefits off of science especially the earliest philosophies that you know that try to take some of the the truisms of empirical um, phenomena and build off from that with the metaphysical form of being as, as an element, right? As fire, water. Um, so there is not just a war. There's always been, it's, it's, it's always been more subtle usually of, of a sort of subordination um, of, an, of an exploitation where in the end philosophy is generally perpetrated the war by insinuating itself as fundamental uh, and particular sciences as secondary, as regional, as Heidegger would say, right? Um, so there, I mean, Larwell talks about this as, as these, these various peace treaties, and usually the peace treaties come from philosophy to science, that's generally how he sees it if there have been peace treaties. It's been philosophy to science in such a way that um, that renders it, in the end, still the foundation for that peace, right? It, it, it still renders it uh, hierarchically superordinate. Uh, whereas what Larwell is proposing in the way he works out non-philosophy as this quasi-science of philosophy in, you know, the, in the 80s. Um, he's seeing it that, that what philosophy has never done is it's, it's never itself become, become a piece of data. It's never itself turned into the object of knowledge in order to be indifferently and universally taken as, as a datum to pass through a science that could be valid for all philosophies and all forms. There's a way in which philosophy resists this and has resisted this and maybe even hasn't had the means to, to think it um, for historical reasons, that's very possible too, but this is what it's never um, thought of itself. Anything can be <laughs> taken hold of by science, but there's no science of philosophy, even if there's always been philosophy of science. Um, and it's that, it's the externality and the heteronymity of a science, a philosophy that threatens, um, not the identity of philosophy itself, because we know non-philosophy conserves it, but the identity um, of particular philosophies, right? They, their identities are threatened, it's precisely in their in the warmongering among decisions that those identities 
the verbal skeletal framework of the arguments, etc. All those are necessary, right? And um, and this is why Laurel is he's he he may be seen as as you said earlier anarchic, right? He's threatening. Um, as though he wanted to destroy, whereas there is a conservation, there is a conservation of the the philosophical idiom and its individuality. Even in non-philosophy, you mean? Yeah. I mean, that's still conserved. It's been reworked, but it hasn't been done in such a way as to just mutilate the, the identity um, it conserves it in its reworking and its recasting. It thinks through the language, right on the other, like to the other side of it. So it, but that's 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 the real thing, right? It's it, I mean, non-philosophy and its rewriting according to the non-thetics um, conserves and and recasts. So what's actually being done away with is the principle of sufficiency, the auto position, right? The, it's, so in that sense, it's, you know, it, it can conserve the individuality of it, but it restricts or shows, shows to be restrictive the, the auto form. It's the, it no longer allows for these individualities to be at home with themselves, right? It, it, um, it kind of denies their their self sameness um, in order to function, but it allows those self samenesses to to subsist, right? I mean, that's the paradox. Islam philosophy doesn't threaten philosophies from within. It's not internal to them. Otherwise, it would be just another mode of them. Um, and this is, but it's precisely that the philosopher turns this back into struggle into non-philosophy to be subsumed back into the warmongering ways whereas non-philosophy already to take to even to function already presupposes or not presupposes but works out axiomatizes that suspension of war so it might be the element of war too that's being taken away from philosophy and that it thrives off. It thrives off of the war of the opposition of um, of opposites in the in the unity, right? It, it thrives off of the Heraclitian flux and struggle. That's what it sees its life as. So, I mean, it strikes me that one of the things you're saying that philosophy resists in non-standard philosophy or non-philosophy is that it, it kind of plugs in from the outside a sort of analytical machine um, that's sort of capable of subtracting out the, the differences between philosophies and sort of showing their kind of their identity in the last instance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess maybe it feels too simple, but that they are a philosophy, that they assert certain things with philosophical faith and spontaneity. At, you know, at the very least, these things are true, even and maybe especially in the cases where these things are being actively deconstructed, they're, they're nevertheless being conserved. Um, and so there's something more radical than just conservation and deconstruction of the philosophical, the items, the elements of philosophical faith, but 
But an act of degrowth is the other kind of language he wants to use, or sterilization, or... I mean, part of it seems to be just the flattening out that would happen if you just plug in a recording machine into, you know, philosopho philosopho space or something, right? And, right, All all the terms end up, you know, being in some sense equal to each other. Right, in the sense that they're all participating, you know, again, possibly in this higher order differential way where they're forming theories and analyses and, and syntheses of their own. But when you sort of treat them as raw material, you, you, you can sort of, you're, you're compelled to treat them as all, you know, as, as without preference and sort of indifferently. Yeah, I mean, you, you allow for a universal ground of translation not just amongst all philosophies, but even from one philosophy to another. And that's through the medium of non-philosophy that can allow this, through this transcendental equivalence, this this ground of translation, um, where Plato and Heidegger and Hegel indifferently, through their differences that are already whose axioms are suspended, right? Their sufficiency, their legitimacy, and through their reworking, they can um, they can interact and circulate and build together without being opposed. Um, otherwise, if one mo- were in a m- philosophical or metaphilosophical um, mode, one would have to respect the differences in the philosophies through their differences and therefore through their decisional matrices and it's therefore through their conflict um, which has historical elements it has prosodic elements it has rhetorical and um, positional elements we have to respect the ways in which they mobilize their binaries but non-philosophy shows that it's through the unity of, of their binaries that they are equivalent. And um, suspending that legitimacy of, of, of the oppositional mode of philosophical voices allows them to actually participate in this trans-philosophical utopia. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm struck by something you said earlier about <clears> that the philosophy works, right? And this is... You know, I, I think Zizek brings up the example of Pascal, who sort of talks about you know the the sort of cunning of of a of a deity is is to create miracles in such a way that they're obvious to believers who are looking for them, who are subjectively engaged, but to anyone else, it seems like just a happenstance, coincidence, and event, right? Um, I, I mean, I'm sure by this way in which you're sort of saying philosophy works despite the fact that it's hallucinated or, you know, sort of part of a, a kind of transcendental dream work, right? Um, that it works if you position yourself as a, as a believing subject and sort of construct a universe around it, mm-hmm. then, then certain elements of the truth of it are revealed right like it it sort of works as an interpretive matrix but only from that 
engaged subjective position where you're actively looking for the truth of it in the first place, right? Where right. you're not questioning its its sort of fun, fundamental correlation with of of a truth and a reality. Yeah, I mean the the mobilization of the unity of contraries um, are able to form these these building blocks that we can call dialectic or you know our um, you know Kant calls it the transcendental method these these different these different moves in which philosophy has a uh, has a has a means of circulation and a means of economy to it and internally and externally so it not just allows for the isolated individual insofar as we can consider one isolated to um, externalize thinking and participate in it in a way as to master experience right because that's one of the things that philosophy provides um, but this is always also in conjunction with our existence with others and the, the already our position in a world and the accumulations of the power relations that we are born into and participate in and revise and that form around us um, all of that philosophy is able to lead us always back to the, the ethical relation, the meaning of life, what it means to live. Right, it you know, exerts a, a profound civilizing influence. Yes. This is what I was thinking about calling, calling Laruel an anarchist because he seems to be uh, undermining precisely those influences which are responsible for the heights of civilization. I guess the idea is that they've turned into their opposite in some way. Well, I guess that's the thing where just like in sublimation and Freudian sense, right, there are um, drives harmful to the social sort of lubrication of the status quo of things working spontaneously, right, that drives have to be sublimated and so far. And in their sublimation, the, the investments, right, of those drives flow into you know, other, uh, other forms. Only one example is art, but it's, it's a great example, especially in the medieval ages, of monotheistic sublimation forming these, um, these, these, these artistic, you know, um, co-belongings. But the same way, I mean, that's, that's what's at, right? So decisionality exploits, and for Laruel, it exploits the human, as Kolozova calls it. He calls it loam, man, right? right. In the, because that's, that's the typical philosophical register that he's inheriting and he's working through. Um, and so... But he identifies man with eminence, right? And there's a way in which he's kind of pointed out that by assuming philosophy and finding it at work and allowing it to work for thinking, we also have already assumed the restricted framework within which thought will be coordinated. Um, and it's now that to sort of make that explicit through non-philosophy, we can show how not only philosophy can be conserved and take on a new 
less limited and restricted uh, opening, right? The Greek opening, as he calls it. Um, but in that sense, too, that the human can be unleashed from the philocentric exploitation that is sort of always already assumed. Um, sort of a theological concept of the human that gets imposed. Well, it, I mean, theological is would have to be obviously parsed, right? I mean, he would work through God as in God without being, so not a metaphysical God. Um, and obviously that suffix of logical would also be held suspect because the mode of the logical of the logos is the mode of the reversibility of the real and language or the real and thought through language or I, I mean maybe just more simply that humanity is something that is given or assumed rather than produced or you know given whatever. without givenness right right as he or say. yeah sorry from, from within philosophy man is something that is not produced but rather given assumed etc yes right, right. yeah um it's a component right in the machine and um rather than constructed as a result of machinery. And I mean, maybe this is where I'm kind of curious about, which is like this idea of sort of self-mastery, mm-hmm. right? which I think folds into this kind of philosophy yes. about like thought determining reality and so on, rather than being determined by it. I don't know, I, I guess maybe I'd be curious if we could link up some of the stoic concerns about sort of being indifferent to the world, Yeah. right? With, with sort of this Larwellian, like, cognitive stoicism or something sort of being indifferent to the content of a thought but adhering only to its like syntax or I don't know something like this I'd be curious what you what you make of that idea um like stoicism and non-philosophy this question of this sort of indifference right that the one is indifferent to any any description of it right to any particular representation of it in the same way Stoic subject is kind of, I don't know, but I think even this needs to be parsed, right? It's a certain kind of indifference, right? It's indifference to things in, in which you can't make a difference, right? Right. Um, whereas in, in non-philosophy, right, it's like, it's an indifference to, like, almost, like, it's an indifference to the, the content because you're taking it from the perspective of, like a material right right so one content's as good as another right like you're not sort of making evaluations and judgments at that level which is that of philosophical faith and spontaneous evaluation of philosophical positions as somehow already being given or determined or decided without you even having to produce anything that that, that generates that that decision but i mean maybe that's one of the questions right like is the point of philosophy to impose a bunch of decisions upon thought, right, to pose a decisional matrix or, or structure, or is it, I, I, I don't know, I mean, like, there's this thing about philosophy in terms of it helping us work through decision problems, right, like, it provides both the matrix that poses us decision-oriented problems and a reasoning, space of reasons kind of framework for, like, evaluating different options, doing scenario planning, speculating projecting right like philosophy and this is maybe getting back to the philosophy the work philosophy does in the world right which is sort of you know enabling different relationships with 
with time, right? Yeah. Because you can you can attune yourself to the different speeds of different kinds of, of things as, as they're these different materialities as they're unfolding in the world, right? Like philosophy is sort of able to bring together all these different sensitivities to different materialities and, and sort of try to weave them into a world, right? Into a unified story. Okay. Right. I mean, this, this, uh, this is where I feel like Levinas comes into Laurawell or Laurawell resumes this thinking of Levinas where philosophy is able to streamline um, everyday decisions and build an ethics off of its ontology and epistemology, our relation to beings in the world and our own uh, embodied form where it, it, it provides for a matrix for, uh, for manipulating beings and from that develops an ethics um, from a physics develops an ethics, right, as the Stoics would do. And I think for Laruelle, or for Levinas, what Levinas tries to show is how, in fact, on the other way around, um, ethics is what precedes metaphysics, or ontology, sorry, because it precedes ontology and actually provides it its basis. And... Um, it's in that sense that he describes religion as this, or ethics as he calls it, right? It's, it's, this, um, it's this before, it's this beforehand. And I think for him, he sees in Heidegger and uh, perhaps in Plato and these others that want to get to the form of the good or the form of the ethical, but through ontology and 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 I think for Levinas that's it's it has to be reversed and I, and this is Levin Levinas constitutes this almost absolute point of of inversion that philosophy could tolerate um, if it can I mean I mean I do think that in totality infinity what is at stake really is the identity of philosophy this inversion of the ethical preceding it. Um, threatens its identity it's this maximal torsion i think and that the uh, mobius strip can undergo before becoming non-philosophy or something yeah i mean i think that it's the i mean bringing in alterity uh the way that levinas does and obviously i think that you know laura well um and then you can find this in levinas and Derrida, that's it, it is about this extremity of the Greek and the Judaic, right? The there is um, by showing the Greek being founded on the Judaic and not vice versa, right? There is this this extremity of an inversion of discourses. Um, you know, and that's partially also what's at stake in um, in Saint Paul and the way that Badu as an atheist seizes upon St. Paul as the sort of figure of the, uh, the subject who, who connects the, the presentations up with, with events. And that's the foundation of the universalism, which is a kind of mutual 
which is this what he calls the fourth di- the fourth discourse the discourse of faith that subverts both the logical philosophical mode of discourse of the Greeks and the prophetic discourse of the Judaic discourse and and therefore to both seems um, like this 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 almost foolish or nonsensical mode that to the prophetic and to the philosophical Paul's mode which is this kind of non-synthesis of the two right he's he's this fourth mode this fourth discourse it subverts both of them and therefore is foreign to both of them and won't be understood um, you, you're talking about the four discourses in Lacan it's like the discourse of the master discourse of the uh, no no it's um it's not particularly that those four discourses. It's it's about um, the way in which Paul takes up following the truth events of Christ. He, in so far as he's taking up this language of the subject, he uh, can't pr- pr- proceed in the modes that are established in the state of the situation, i.e., the modes of knowledge. Because the Greek mode of philosophizing and the Judaic oh, mode of prophesying, right. prophesying are, um, and I, the third mode I don't remember. This is all in Saint Paul, but uh, it's it's more or less like the he can't he he neither can go through the everyday or in these two extreme discourses. There are already the field of knowledge and what is being undertaken in this fourth discourse, which sounds like folly. In, in this fourth way that Paul undertakes in this new Christian language. It's neither Greek nor Jew. And it's not their sort of new synthesis. It is this other mode. And that's the way in which he will um, have to proceed in order to found this universalism. Because precisely because it can't be determined by the state of the situation. It is... Um, foreclosed, if you will, by the realm of knowledge. Therefore, is neither prophetic nor philosophizing. It, it has to, like, so he's got navigate to, these two. He's got to invent a new modality right. of expression. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's his role as as subject, and insofar as he remains faithful to the Christ event. Um which is, a, which is a matter of a certain correlation between his discourse and the, the reality of that event, right? The truth of that event. Yes. And and that's why a lot of the things that he has to undertake is is these disputes about what is or is not Christian. And a right. lot of it has to do with de-Judaifying Judaism because a lot of these, these questions are from the particularity and singularity of the the Jewish people and their history and the way in which he proceeds is to try to undo this distinction of Jewish and Gentile. Because if you know, one of the facets of the event is that it doesn't belong to either the first to um, connect it or to these, the, the, this one people that would be closest to it or that would connect it up, right? This, this is in the, the ethics book where he describes the different hollow forms of um, 
of collective appropriations of events, right? And there's a fullness of the event when it's associated with the people that are closest to it, like the Nazi event or something like that. So the true universality of, of the event doesn't belong to any particular people. And this is why um, this cultural, historical skin of Judaism has to be, you know, un, unknotted. So insofar as it may remain, insofar as it has been, a, is going to be a material for this new birth, it has to sort of undo its cultural specificity. Right, it needs to get re-singularized for a new individuation. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, there are certain obviously bedrock elements like, you know, heterosexuality and these other things, but a lot of... I mean, this question of even, like, labor on the Sabbath and these other things, the, um, they are no longer... There's an influence, like, the marking of the people, of the Judaic people with Abraham and, you know, this fidelity to a certain cultural event through the marking of the body, for example, is kind of, like, the most primordial um, example of moving beyond these singular markings of a people in order to create this global um, event that belongs to no one. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good way that's a good way to put it. And, and it's always about navigating sort of the, the, the inherited cultural norms with right. the foundation for universalism to come. Right, and somehow Paul manages to create a new discourse, find a line of flight, cut open to the universal, and try to to teach people how to how to speak this new language, right? Like, yeah, and it's this new practice. I mean, that's what's also involved. It's this new. I mean, one is not one in 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 so far as one is practicing um, all these cultural signifiers. One is also. You know, practicing and the one is also becoming subject to the truth event, right? There's, um, I mean, this is all involved in the law being sin and death, right? The state of the situation of knowledge of the sort of boundaries of, um, of being, of representation. All of those have to be subject to a, to a becoming. So, um, it's just interesting that Paul is, is taken for, for the atheist is able to like suspend. I mean, this is basically at the very beginning of the, his little book on St. Paul is right. what he, he basically says that he's suspending. This is Badu, right? Yes. Yeah, Badu is suspending the, um, the, uh, validity of the notion of say resurrection, Right, um, but it's ironic because because that's the kind of key event for Paul. So he's able to 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 unpack. There's something totally ironic in it. He's able to unpack the following the truth of the consequences of Jesus as the event of resurrection. Right, as the the side of our non-death and universalize it for all beings, and then to suspend the validity of actual rebirth it's 
become. Right, whereas, you know, I don't know, the standard atheist attack is usually just a, I don't know, I think of Nietzsche as sort of like how it's, Christianity is the religion of the death of God in a certain way. Right. Like, I, I kind of wonder if it's if it's this, if it's kind of about the death of particular gods. Right. right. And sort of a new, you know, unitary, global, you know, theonomy. Yeah. Right, where there's, there's kind of a, a new, you know, theological economy and... I mean, not as much attempt to manipulate individuals. Like, I don't know, it's like maybe this is the, the tonal shift, right? From like self-mastery of individuals, right? To like civilization of, of collectives and communities. Right. And I mean, this sort of shift in the role of, of religion as, as, you know, from like, you know, improving the self-mastery of individuals of one community from like trying to think about our species being and yes. you know kind of spiritual evolution now now conceived at a at a level of collective differentiation trans differentiation right this re-individuation um to, you know the development of org- an organization of, of new kinds of societies is an active process of sort of communal mastery yeah and it's Nietzsche correlates it's uh it's the movement from breeding to domestication right it's we move from this ancient kind of slave-based societies of the ancient Aryans and their breeding of classes and castes, and we move into this, what he sees as the Christian mode of collectivization of, of humans is, is, is through this domestication, which leads back to the sublimation of which we spoke earlier, right? Um, and the this universalized form of making herds herd formations um, there's a different relation to the natural for Nietzsche right that morality in the end for him becomes an anti-nature right it's it's the anti-natural um, but this is interesting where Levinas when he takes up the word morality he redefines it right, in a way that it no longer is this alien externalized form imposed upon bodies right but the very means through which we uh, interact with the infinity of the other, right? So, um, but this is this is part of the interesting get back to non philosophy is to talk about words like morality or even ontology and metaphysics across people like Nietzsche, Kant, Levinas, and Saint Paul, and Paul <laughs> Badu. We have to always consistently use these these highly general terms that in each voice and each philosophy are highly particularized when we have to like correspond to very different diagrams yeah i mean every word has to have this whole slew of footnotes in the way in which they are individuated in each thought and it really does require a a sort of wild juggling act to be able to simultaneously characterize each each word each term in these various philosophies at once it's it's sort of transversalizing philosophy 
Yeah, and, and Laura Well can make these terms universally valid in a in a discourse by having them already, you know, submitted to their their self um, cancellation, if you will, insofar as they recognize what they resist, which is the foreclosure of, of the real and their reorientation. Um, so that when we distinguish particular terms in political philosophies, we are being like on the highest level philosophical and we're doing that archival interminable commentary um, in this kind of comparative textuality. And a lot of that is, 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 is hugely and highly and eminently preparatory for the non-philosophical labor. There is no minimum of this that can be removed. There is always a... I mean, we, we've always already, when we produce non-philosophical texts, we've always already highly um, crisscrossed this philosophical domain, and it requires that. So, um, I mean, one perhaps is only rarely non-philosophical, and because we're typically auto-positioned, we're we're hallucinating that thought can determine the real. Yeah, and that's that's what we're born into. That's what we are socialized in. That's that's kind of the. It seems to be almost inextricable from the medium of thought itself. And Laurel showing a way in which it's not. It's not inextricable. And in right. fact, it is. It makes me think of Aristotle, right? This idea that sort of part of the mark of cognitive sophistication involves being able to entertain an idea without believing in it, right? Right. It's a, it's a f form of experimentation. Um, and, you know, we, we, we as philosophers can tend to do this. A lot of times we can suspend our disbelief but I feel like deep down there's always already a kind of um, you know there's already this backdrop of a of a kind of prejudice. Oh, totally. I mean, we can do that out of there's two ways you can do that, right? Out of philosophical sufficiency, where it's like you don't even think it's in need of defense. It's just it can be assumed blindly, or you know you can do it out of philosophical degrowth, right? Where you're working through it in a guess a more structural way but and sort of not taking for granted that these terms correlate with tr with reality with truth in some mm. some way but are rather like parts of a parts of a machine right that you that can be right. that you can plug in different kinds of measuring devices into and analyze and uh, i mean it's it's kind of the procedure in atp to some degree this idea that you just plug in machines into writing yes. you know and take, measure the different speeds, measure the intensities of the lines that right. are moving, right? And sort of, you know, don't try to impose some kind of world tree, global, you know, syn synthetic ideology on it, right? Or the opposite side of, I think, ATP is, is I think, Badu's method of using other thinkers and the way that he, on the one hand, in this kind of scarecrow effect, but on the other hand, in this, um, what he calls polemics, Right, where it is about this kind of transversal and the, the thought of the other that doesn't respect 
the its its own coherent inherent discourse and doesn't go through that medium and eschews that 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 means of dealing with another thinker through their text themselves and therefore doesn't respect the individuality of their that text but actually suspends it for this well in the end almost symbolic manipulability that he's striving for and so I, in that sense I mean that I feel like when we think of if Laura Wells seems anarchic and seems to not respect the integrity of another thought uh, but do much more so explicitly makes this his very opus uh, modus operandi where that's that he makes it clear that in his polemics he is not he's extracting a kind of violent essence of the other insofar as they can constitute a type or or even just a function in, in his machine um, and I think in that sense Laura Well is, is much more um, respectful but Laura Well is in the end much more frightening because all Badu is doing is making the warmongering essence of philosophy in its most simplified form he's simplifying it he's He's, he turns it into a, a movement of theorems, if you will, reducing philosophers to a, to a theorem that works within his um, ontological presentation. And I think that that's, that's just a higher form of, of, of a conservation of a philosophical principle. It's, it's, a, it's a purification of the war if you will, among philosophers. Um, and Hegel does it in his own way. He gets this especially from, from Hegel, um, if not from Plato, but you know, a lot of Hegel's writing is on his, not just contemporaries, but building off of the, the synthesis of opposing philosophical visions that accumulates world historically into the movement of spirit that he is both theorizing and performing for us in front of our very eyes, right? So everything leads to Hegel, if you will. He, he, he assumes the subsumptions that um, constitutes him standing on top of the, the giants of thinking. Um, and I think Badu just shows that we don't have to go through the, this internable text, textuality. This, this, we don't have to go through um, commentary. And I think that's why when one reads Badu dealing, especially with a contemporary like Deleuze, it feels extremely violent and, and, it, and it feels like uh, he's, painting, he's, he's painting a straw man. But that's, that's what it is. It's the art of the straw man polemics, I think. Um, well, it's, it's a reduction to a, a schematic, right? And it has, it has a lot of thematic value, especially if you're trying to establish a schematism, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, I don't know. I mean, look, but but he's read Deleuze at least carefully, right? Like, and that's why I think people attribute malintent, right, to some of that because it seems like you know a, a cunning attempt to present Deleuze as saying the opposite of what he says. There's something psychoanalytic in this procedure, right? Of sort of detecting beneath every of Deleuze's words, you know, someone within him screaming the opposite word. 
I would say I would say that that's more Zizek, right? Where Zizek shows a quote unquote like bearded Deleuze, right. the maximal by by. Um, Even his like his Deleuze book is like thirty pages on Deleuze and then three hundred pages on like Hegel. Well, that's what he does. He 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 reduces Deleuze to the one that Deleuze distinguishes himself from most. Right. And so there is this kind of um, maximal difference where Deleuze and Hegel are indiscernible, and um, which which sounds like a Larwellian like idea to me to some degree, right? Like sort of finding the dialectics beneath even the people who say, well, I hate dialectics, right? Like, yeah, but Zizek does does this through the mode of philosophy, and therefore it's eminently, like, violent and warmongering, yeah. where it, it is validating a... It's not a transcendentally equivalent translation of Deleuze into Hegel. It is an eminently warmongering philosophical translation of Deleuze into Hegel, and therefore it already assumes a play of recognition and a play of opposition whereas the cora of non-philosophical decisions of decisions rendered non-philosophical is no longer about a regime of opposition and therefore it's not about a betrayal of Deleuze if you will because Zizek's trying to show that Deleuze betrays himself philosophically and is therefore indiscernible from Hegel because of the movement and the effects of his decisionality whereas Laurel almost thoroughly undermines this critique by showing Deleuze's fidelity to philosophy. Laurel even registers his own alacrity at sort of Deleuze, the intensity of Deleuze's like philosophicality or something, right? Like, Yeah. Um, I think that the way that Deleuze and Hegel would be rendered not they wouldn't be rendered the same Right, it's interesting. I think that's what Zizek's trying to do. Zizek's trying to reduce, sort of, the infinity of the differences, the otherness of each thinker. Same. He's trying to render Deleuze as the same as Hegel, and vice versa. And that's not what is at stake in non-philosophy. It's not about making one thinker the same as the other, because again, it is about conserving the individuality. Um, and same thing as sort of the wave and the corpuscle, right? Uh, they are indistinguishable due to their milieu, but not due to their statements, right? It's all I'm saying is um, it's not a question of of equivalent, transcendentally equivalent is not the same as philosophically indistinct, indistinguishable. Um, because it's no longer about particular identities, right? It's about identities of the last instance from the one. And so one uh, statements are only, they're rendered equivalent by the one, but not the same insofar as one would be identical to another through another. I think that's, that's the interesting thing. It's from the one and not like through one another. Right, There's, it's almost an internal return thing about like one flo- each philosopher has to take the place of all the others or something like this. Not even a trans critique, which would still be too dialectical and so on, but um, of just reading one thinker through another, regardless of how charitable and careful with the integ- right. integrity of the singularities of their systems. It, it really is this 
like this intensive multiplication or something like this, right? Like of every philosophy by every other one. There's something of this, like trying to sort of do a gigantic summation, sort of draw a line beneath philosophy and, and sort of show how there's something else, you know, another denominator here that's, the philosophy doesn't just correlate with, with the world or with reality, I guess. That it constructs a world in order to try to establish this correlation, but that this is uh, an, an act of abstraction which is exploitative regardless of how spontaneous it is or how critical it is to the operation of thinking, that it's, it's a hallucination that thought can determine, determine the real. Um, maybe this sets up the stage for that conflict between philosophy and science, right? The sort of, and maybe the, the state of war within each, right? As each tries to assert its, its thinking, you know, each fragment tries to assert determination of the real I mean I guess I think about mathematics right because it does seem like you're there are irreducible mathematical truths right, right. in some sense right I'll, I'll just put it that way right um, and it's certainly not a question of if math really works right like exactly in the same sense at least as you could have you could question whether philosophy works and so on um, you could ask you know how how mathematics works maybe right and and I think You know, mathematics proceeds, at least in terms of the individual, right? Like, by a reconstruction of proofs, right? Of quasi-algorithmic symbolic manipulations, mm -hmm. right? But that that are, are, are themselves, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, you, you can't just do it purely mechanically and understand. There's something about you have to work through the proof. You have to think through the proof. You have to sort of catch catch a hold of the cogn you know, the spatio-temporal dynamism that's at work, that's moving through the proof, the kind of ab abstract animal, right? You sort of begin to see the genealogical relations between proofs, the way proof methods like extend and unfold and, and, and sort of reveal different aspects of themselves and apply it in different contexts, right? Like, I mean, this, if there's a way mathematics works, it's this, it's the evolution of mathematical notation and the development of proof techniques, right? On the one hand, more and more rigorous definitions and, or more and more precise definitions. On the other hand, more and more rigorous methodologies for for manipulating these these symbols. If we want to reduce it to that, again, I suspect, like at least in, in terms of like, you know, sort of how mathematicians work, it's not just manipulating symbols ab abstractly, right? There is a movement of of thinking that's coordinated with it, at, at one with it. I mean, it's here where I really think you can see the sort of tracing off the one, the irreducible truths of, you know, of the, of the mathematical universe, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's almost this, that math, you know, mathematics works as long as you're in Plato's, you know, utopia of ideas or, or something, right? Like, um, but it's also effective for the physical sciences. I don't yes. know, I wonder about the metaphysical sort of pretensions that have clung clung to mathematics is sort of this this I think lingering question just I mean again like I, I feel it's sort of like you know that when you know when you're talking philosophically about mathematics it seems obvious how anthropomorphic and you know kind right. of made up it is but then as soon as you go and are actually working at mathematics it becomes it's like abundantly clear that it's irreducible mathematical truths that you're chipping away at right um I mean, there's something about like the plane of organization of the world and the way it, 
the way it can eat away at like the consistency of, of mathematical schema, right? And like as our as our sense of the world becomes more nuanced, right? That mathematical mathematical notation can can schematize more and more kind of complex relationships between functions and the spaces in which they're operating, right? And in some ways, I think it's this: there's like an internalization into the manifold, right? I mean, this is this is maybe kind of the Ramanian shift or the the equivalent of abstract art or something you know the way in which it's you know sort of less the space in which the mathematical figures and, and forms and equations unfold but that somehow imminent to them right these properties on you know kind of fall out right rather than i don't know i'm tempted to go into like sets versus categories but i feel like we're right. a little far <laughs> a little far away from some of the core, core that, that could have its own yeah. pod, podcast and the, the relation of these two so we're, we're coming up on an hour do you have uh i don't know any any thoughts on either what i just said or just i guess generally the stuff about you know philosophy and transversality and kind of the war among philosophical positions and I mean, I would I would have to go go and try to make an analogy between what you said about mathematics and physical structures and um, sort of non philosophical terms as first terms and their manipulations as these these primordial symbols, even though they wouldn't equate into the in the same way in terms of manipulability um, but something ex of the order of the expressible of the non-philosophical um, being a part of the work that it produces there's that if we were going to talk about a, a non-mathematics um, just to throw that term out there and make it up it would it would be about this manipulability of these um, these transcendental identities and their reduction and then their uh, foreclosure which is why we can use all of these these terms like um, being God one real man all of these these philosophical signifiers and in their non-philosophical regime reduce them to this state of uh, of 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 symbol um, that would have their own. I mean, this is also why he even uses that language of axiomatization, right? That these these symbols are derived from the one through an axiomatization, and therefore no longer reflect their philosophical planes of origin. Like that's canceled out, and they don't they aren't determined by that baggage of history and textuality that would mire them into. A play of signifiers that links up into the the the, the battlefield, the war amongst decisions. Um, the law world doesn't ever really like to talk about it as though what he's producing is a mathematics, um, and this has to do with for him um, a question of. The relationship of philosophy and mathematics, and of the decisionality involved in both, and perhaps not wanting, insofar as we are dealing with philosophy as a symptom of the real, um, of the language of the real, right? Where 
he doesn't necessarily want to from within philosophy divide philosophy from mathematics but to keep it as a uh, an intact identity and so he's very careful not to make a make an analogy um or to like set theorize um terms non-philosophically Thanks so much for joining us for Theory Talk. We're really glad you're thinking with us. We really enjoy making the show for you. To get new episodes, remember to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And since you stayed with us this far, let me ask you a favor. Give us a rating or a review. It helps other people find the show. You can connect with us on Twitter at Theory underscore Talk. Be safe out there. Have a great week.